0: Paper's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day again, a day that you have given us to gather together as your people to give you praise and thanksgiving as we do every week and hopefully as we do every day. So I pray that this morning as we spend time looking at your word on the subject of thanksgiving, that you would, again, by your spirit, move that into our hearts that we would be a thankful people, regardless of circumstances, giving thanks to you in all things, for this is your will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> I, know, I know it's hard not to think about Christmas with all the snow. Am I right? It, it's like, I, I think of it like a coping mechanism, you know, coping, a way to, way to like, okay, it's snowing, Christmas is coming, I'm happy about that. But I don't want to skip over Thanksgiving. As, as, as wonderful as Christmas is, Thanksgiving is also very, very wonderful. And uh, I, I was looking at Facebook the other day, and a friend of mine who lives in Minneapolis said, I just cleaned off three inches of snow off my, off my car. I deserve some pre-Thanksgiving Christmas music. And so uh, that's, that's what he did. And, and I said, I feel the same way. It's a way to deal with, with, with the weather. Now, now, be be honest with me for a second. How many of you have played a Christmas song sometime in your house already? Christmas movie? Christmas movie? Yes. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So, Christmas is wonderful, and, and I'm all good for starting early. I'm okay with that. As long as you don't forget how wonderful Thanksgiving is, and, and, and to have that in your heart as well. So... Um, I read a list of things that housewives are thankful for this week. I wanted to read them to you. Housewives are thankful for automatic dishwashers because they make it possible for us to get out of the kitchen before the family comes back for their after-dinner snacks. Yep. <clears throat> They're thankful for husbands who attack small repair jobs around the house because they usually make them big enough to call on the professionals. They're thankful for children who put away their things and clean up after themselves. They're such a joy you hate to see them go home to their parents. (laughs) Hopefully that's when the filiots visit one of your houses. The filiot kids are like that. I hope. I hope. (laughs) Okay. They're thankful for teenagers because they give parents an opportunity to learn a second language. And they're thankful for smoke alarms because they let you know when the turkey is done. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Things housewives are thankful for. Um, I'd like to look at Psalm chapter 95 with you today. If you would turn there. Psalm 95. All right, it says this. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation." I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. A psalm for thanksgiving that has this call to worship, and then it has this description of God as the maker of all things, the maker of of earth, everything belongs to him. And then another call to worship, let's bow down in verse 6 to the Lord our maker, for He's our God. And then it ends with this warning, like, you better not be like the Israelites when they were at Meribah and Massah, when they were, like, complaining and quarreling. Don't be like them. And then the psalm just ends. Okay? It's like, give thanks. God made you. He's the maker. So give thanks. Praise Him. And then it ends with this warning. I'd like to look a little bit into this whole warning thing, because it seems like if I'm called to give thanks, Then I'm also called not to be like the Israelites in the wilderness. As you remember, they left during the exodus from from Pharaoh and from Egypt, and they get into the wilderness, and then they start complaining. So I want you to turn with me and look at that story in Exodus 17. Would you go there? Exodus chapter 17. So to understand Psalm 95... You've got to understand Exodus 17. Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus 17. We'll read 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling to the place, uh, place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Raphitim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which with you struck the Nile, and go... I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So you've got this story of these people that came out out of Egypt, and they had seen all sorts of wonderful things God had done. They'd seen the plagues on Egypt. They'd seen the Red Sea part. And, and they'd done all of that. And after all that they had seen, now they're thirsty in the desert. And they start complaining. And so, uh, Masa mariba mean quarreling and complaining. So that's, that's uh, 2a. The people quarreled with and complained. And, and they tested God. So the idea is th- they're following God in the wilderness. And they have the God that can work wonders, that can work miracles. We know this God. We know who He is as well. And yet for all the wonders and miracles, when they got thirsty, they still complained. They, they still criticized Moses. They, they, they still they had this attitude of unbelief that, that they said, we, we were demanding water. Now, I want to just highlight the practical part of this. Because thankful people don't do this. Th- thankful people, I think... When thankful people walk through a hard time, and let, let's face it, not having water is hard. You're thirsty. Your kids are complaining. I mean, you get, get this in your mind. Your kids are saying, Mom, when are we going to get a drink of water? I'm so thirsty. And you're thirsty too, and you're angry, and you're, you're walking around. And, but instead of calling out to God to help you, you turn on Moses, you start quarreling, you start complaining, and you test God. God, if you're really here, you better give me water. Well, didn't he show you that he was here when the Red Sea parted? Didn't he already prove that to you? And so the root issue here, which is B, is a hardness of heart or, or unbelief. The, the issue is a faith issue. It's not just a quarreling and complaining because all of us complain sometimes, and all of us, uh, I, I think sometimes we want to know is God with us or not. We, we, we have some of these issues, but at the same time, what they did, what they did, was from a heart of, are you really there, God? Are you really with us? And that's a faith issue. Because if you have faith and you go through hard times, you might be like one of the psalmists and you issue a complaint to God. You might say, God, I need you here. Will you come in and help me? But you don't say, are you really here or not? I mean, really. Because, because I'm kind of doubting it right now. And you notice they said to Moses, a couple of evidences that they had a faith issue, is they said to Moses, you did this. You led us out of Egypt. You led us to this dry place where there's no water. It's like, really? Did Moses do that? Or did God do that? Moses is just a human representative, right? So you see this this lack of faith here. And they wanted proof that God is really here. And so what did God do? He says to Moses, Take your staff. Now remember, the staff is the thing that he struck the Nile with, the Nile turns to blood, right? Take your staff and strike this rock, and water comes from it. I want you to think to yourself that God already proved that he has a lot of control over water, didn't he? You know, Red Sea, it's control over water. Nile turning to blood, thats a lot of control over water. So when you're thirsty, you have a God that has control over water. He can help you, he can provide for you. Maybe you could come before Him with thanksgiving and thank Him for all that He's done and call out for help for the things that you still need. He has control over water. But if you don't really believe in Him, if you don't really believe He's with you and you're just walking around in the wilderness somewhere, then you want to test Him. Prove it. you're here. Prove it. We ought to be careful that when we don't have things that we want, or even maybe need by necessity, that we don't come to God in a spirit of well prove yourself. Prove yourself. Because when we start saying prove yourself, it's as if we're saying, I don't really think you're here with me. And that is a statement of disbelief. And that's very dangerous. Now, um, Paul picks up on this in First Corinthians 10. Would you go there next? We're going to jump around a little bit. Because this is a story that's been referenced in different places. So jump into your New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10. If you have the same version of the Bible that I have here, it's page 811. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert." These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then he goes on to describe some evil things that they could set their hearts on that we do as well. Now, I love this because in the first couple of verses he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He's like this story that we just read about Israel complaining and grumbling and testing God, this is really a story for us. And he says, you notice that our forefathers, verse 1, we're all under the cloud, and they all pass through the sea. So you have this cloud that's leading Israel through the wilderness, and they all pass through the Red Sea. Now that is water. Because in verse 2 it says, they We're baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What he's trying to do is, he's trying to say, I know they didn't do baptism the way we do it as the church. You know, Jesus was baptized. We're baptized. Many of you are baptized as, as a sign that you were in the faith. That you believe in this. They were baptized also. They went through the Red Sea. I I guess that would be like a reverse baptism, right? Because they stayed dry, right? And and they went right through the water. We go into the water, under the water, they went through the water on dry ground. So we're supposed to compare ourselves and say, okay, we're kind of like them. We get baptized, they were baptized. And then he goes on to say, they all ate the same spiritual food, And they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So secondly, he says, they had spiritual food and spiritual drink. What is our spiritual food and spiritual drink? Communion. Communion. The, 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 The wine represents Jesus' blood. The bread represents his body. So again, he's trying to say, just like Israel had manna coming down from heaven... And they picked it up in the morning, and they were able to eat it during the day. They needed bread. God gave them this special heavenly bread called manna. And they and they drank from the rock that we just read about. God was supplying their needs. And, and, and so he gives us that example in communion. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. And again, there's a reference point here for us. They're kind of like us. So it's like Paul wants to say, please don't skip over this story. Don't just read this and say... Those crazy Israelites, what were they doing in the wilderness complaining like that? They're so stupid because they saw everything God had done and yet they weren't thankful. They didn't have faith. No, Paul wants us to read this and go, is this me? Do I do this? And he uses baptism and communion to make the connection. It's really brilliant that he does it that way. But then he says something crazy uh, to me to think about. Uh, He says, that rock was Christ. That's verse 4. The rock... That they drank from was Jesus. Now, how does that work? The rock was Jesus, and he he says it's the rock that accompanied them. It it accompanied them in verse four. Now, this doesn't, this isn't a story that's in like the text, but uh, rabbis developed this tradition that after they drank from the rock, they carried the rock with them on their wilderness journeys. So Paul is probably referencing that tradition that they picked up the rock, carried it with them, and he's saying, that's how Jesus is with you. The rock is Jesus. What does that mean? If I was to take that literally, then Moses took his his staff and he hit Jesus, and Jesus gave them water. Now, I don't think that works because I don't think what Paul means is Jesus is literally that piece of rock. I don't think that's what Paul means. But it is interesting to think about it from this angle, that as Moses struck the rock, and the rock provided water, so God struck his son, and his son provides living water. You see? So let's say it like this. Part B. That Jesus being the rock, Refers to his presence in our life and his provision. He's with you, and, and whether whether or not the whether or not the Israelites actually picked up the rock and carried it around, uh, I was looking at I was looking at paintings this week of this story because I, I like I like looking at art that 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 you know talks about the story that I'm preaching because sometimes it gives an insight into it. I saw one I should have I should have shown it to you. It was like this huge rock and Moses hitting this giant rock. I'm like they couldn't carry that around. There's no way you know, but. If it was a small enough rock, maybe they did carry it around. Maybe there was an underground spring, like right there, and the spring burst up out of water. You know, we, I don't know how it all went down. I don't know if they actually really did carry the thing around. But I do know that what Paul is saying is Jesus was with them every step of the way. Even when they were thirsty, Jesus, the living water, was with them. And that's something to take to heart in your own life. That when you're walking through a wilderness and it seems like God is so far off and it seems like there are very real needs that aren't being met, that God is walking with you during that time and He's still providing. He's still ready to help you. But you may go through a period of thirst. Don't forget the rock travels with you. Let me use a little modern technology to illustrate the point a little better. Um, this being not so modern. Um, I picked up this rock from uh, Lake Superior when I was there a number of years ago. And uh, trying to remember some of the things God taught me during that week, I was camping there. What to you is better in your life, Jesus the rock, or your smartphone? Now think about this with me a little bit. I mean, just, just think. What are you more thankful for? What's more helpful in your life? What blesses you more? The rock or your phone? Do you know what you can do with your phone? I'll just open up mine to see what I can do with it. I can see what the weather's going to be today so I know how to dress. I can see all the sports scores I ever wanted with ESPN sports Center app. I know what's going on. I have Facebook. I can, keep, I can even keep track of my enemies on Facebook and stalk them. It's Paul Belcher's birthday today. Is this true? Facebook does not tell me how old you are, Paul. So it falls short in that area. Jesus knows your age. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have a map program on here to keep me from getting lost when I'm driving around. If I get stuck in a city because of the snow, I could book a hotel on this thing. I can call my friends and family, my loved ones, and talk to them. I could text message people I don't really feel like talking to right now. Amen? <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know it's true, and yet you didn't laugh like you should have. Okay. It's not even right. It's not right. I can listen to music on this. Whether I'm in a good mood, I could play something really upbeat, plug this into my car, I got music. Plug it into a home stereo, I got music. J- just really, really. What, what to you is more valuable in your life right now? What blesses you more? Uh, it's just a point of comparison here. on, on to what your hearts are set on. Let's put it this way then. If you misplaced this or lost this, how lost would you be during your day? If you didn't think about Him all day, how lost would you be during the day? Okay? I know it's silly. It's a phone, it's just a phone. And yet, as I read Scripture, Jesus goes with me wherever I go. Whether or not they really carried that rock around or not, the point is still the same. Jesus went with them wherever they went. Every time they were hungry or thirsty, he was still right there. And they could have called him to help, and instead they complained. And they doubted that he was actually there to help them. They doubted it. Because they were just focused on what was right in front of them. All right. Could you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 3? and then we'll jump back into psalms in case you thought i'd forgotten it hebrews chapter 3 the last verse in psalm 95 is god's warning israel that they will never <clears throat> that those people in the wilderness with the exception i believe of caleb and joshua and even Moses and Aaron didn't get to enter the promised land. I don't think God was including them in it, but he said, they will never enter my rest. All those people, except for Caleb and Joshua, Moses and Aaron, there's a select few, maybe Miriam, right? A select few would enter God's rest. The rest would not. So you say, what is God's rest? Uh, let's look, let's actually start in chapter 4. So, uh, the writer of Hebrews references Psalm 95 here in chapter three. You know, you can see it in like verse 15, 3:15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Then in chapter four it says, "Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you have found to fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. That would be ancient Israel." What they had the gospel preach to them? What in the world are you talking about? Maybe it's the gospel that God frees people from slavery, from bondage. He's a redeeming God. He helps his people, He provides for them, He saves them. Exodus is a picture of our gospel of Jesus dying on the cross. Okay, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they who heard it didn't combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed. Enter that rest, just as God said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. And again in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest, talking about Psalm 95 again. If it still remains that some will enter that rest... And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them didn't go into the rest because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David as was said before. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest... Also, rest from his own work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that, God, that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now, that's a lot of theology packed into a few verses. Let's unpack it for a second. I love this part right here. Um, the today in verse 7. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So I want you to stay with the logic here. I mean, this is the word of God, okay? So at some point, uh, uh, we, we believe Moses, some people believe others, someone else wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in the book of Exodus, we have this story about the people of Israel hardening their hearts, complaining about a lack of water, and then hundreds of years later, We have King David writing Psalm 95. And David says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Which day? Today. Today. The day that I wrote this psalm, today. Hundreds of years after the fact. Today. So if you're back over here, and you're you're Israel and you're complaining and you're grumbling and you don't believe in the true God... You, you had disbelief, and God was angry at you. If you're David, you're looking back on it saying, today if you hear, and God will, says he will not let you enter his rest. So they didn't enter the rest. They all died in the wilderness. The people of David's day, did they enter God's rest? Well, it all depends. Did they react in faith of who God is? Or did they have disbelief just like those guys back there? You see what I mean? So when David says, today, the argument goes like this. I'm talking to you people right now. Do you want to enter God's rest? So back there, they probably said, you know what? The people died in the wilderness, the new generation rose up, and they went into the promised land, and they entered their rest. The promised land was a picture of rest. But they didn't truly enter God's rest, because just because you live in Israel doesn't believe you mean the. It doesn't mean you believe in the true God. You get what I'm saying? Just because you come to church doesn't believe you worship the God who made the heavens and the earth. It just means you're sitting here listening to some guy talk. And you thought it was good or you didn't like it at all, whatever. Just because they entered the promised land, that next generation, doesn't mean they really entered God's rest. So what is God's rest? I don't even know if I said point A yet. Uh, A, God's rest is a vivid, way of referring to our salvation. It's a descriptive, beautiful way. It's, it's this... Th- think about what rest is to you. Sunday afternoon you might sit on the sofa and rest. You don't have to labor. You don't have to strive. There's no performance review from you at work, right? All, all is well. You can just be yourself. When you go to bed at night, you get in bed, you rest... You're not scared to death someone's going to break down the door and attack you and your family. You're just at rest. You sleep soundly. I think rest means all of that and more. It's safety, security in God's presence. It's your salvation, knowing you have a home to go to when you die. It's all of these things. I made a list of things I was thinking about that we could refer it to. It means you can let your guard down. It means you get to dwell in in the joyful presence of God. No more hard work. It means not earning your salvation, but resting in what God did for you through Christ. It's a rest that he says, you enter into it now. That's the writer of Hebrews. Um, that's uh, verse 1. You know The promise of entering his rest still stands today. You can enter it right now. And yet, when we get to heaven, we fully enter it. So it kind of starts now. But then the rest really hits when we get to heaven. And and we get to stop toiling under the sun. We get to stop having our bodies wear out. We get to have those harsh memories fade from being so painful in our minds. You know, all that stuff. We are at joyful, peaceful rest. I'm not implying that you're not going to have jobs to do in heaven, by the way. I don't think he means that. I think he just means all the difficulty of earth is put away. We're at rest. So, David said in Psalm 95, enter his rest. Do it today. Today if you hear his voice, enter his rest. How do we hear his voice today? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews, I didn't read it. But there it is in verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So the word of God is how I hear the Lord's voice. And today if you hear it, don't harden your hearts. So let's say one more thing about this. Part B here is that we enter God's rest through a persevering faith in the gospel of Christ. Um, Chapter 4, verse 11 of Hebrews. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Do do you you know that sounds very paradoxical when you read it? it? Does it strike your heart that way? Make every effort to enter his rest. That's like saying, I want you to try really hard to sleep tonight. Really, I want you to try really hard. Make every effort you can to sleep well tonight. Well, what is that like? You know, work hard. And yet we don't work for our salvation. I think, and I think the only way to make sense of this is to say, I have to have a faith that perseveres. I have to have a faith that when troubles come, I can still give thanks. When trials are here, I hold on to my faith. In fact, it's the only thing I have in those moments that gives me the joy and comfort and peace that I have to have to walk through this life. That's it. I have a persevering faith. I have to hold on. And then I can rest. Even when life is burning down around me, I can rest at peace, at joy, giving thanks. That's really the only way. When you're thirsty, the natural inclination is to say, God, I really don't think you're here. But God wants you to say, you are here. I'm giving you thanks because I know you're going to help me. I know you're going to help me. I think Israel treated God as if He was, in our our view, kind of like a Santa Claus. Give me. Give me. You know, if you're not giving me, I don't really think you're here. But we know that He's not Father Christmas. We know He's the Heavenly Father. And He knows what's best for us. So now I invite you at the end here to turn back to Psalm 95. I didn't even preach Psalm 95. I didn't. I want to read Psalm 95 one more time. Only this time, I want you to look at it with everything we've just talked about. Okay? Look at it with everything I've just said. And I want, I want to ask you what jumps out at you. And in your notes, there's a section for this. It might be on the back of your notes. And it says, I am thankful for fill in the blank. I want you to respond to what you see in Psalm 95 now that I'm reading it again after everything we've just read. Are you ready? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God... The great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, today if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Would you jot down a few things that you see in that passage now that maybe you didn't see when I read it the first time in connection with what we've just said? I'll give you a minute or two. What do you see? What is God saying to you to be thankful about this morning?